This is a podcast from Minute Media. Sox fans, here are the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Tonight we will be covering the Hall of Fame results. Big news of the night, David Ortiz makes it into the Hall of Fame on his first year of eligibility, 77.9%. So he got over the 75% threshold by uh, nearly 3%. And then as expected, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling all missed. Bonds was 66%, Clemens 65.2%, and Kurt Schilling all the way down to 58.6 and I think he was what 73 74 percent last year he just missed and then that's a significant drop you know 17 18 points so we'll get into some of the others further down uh in the ballot uh most well some of the guys we're going to cover were one and done and uh we'll, we'll touch on perhaps Manny Ramirez Alex Rodriguez as well But I guess I'll start it off. Let's lead Jason off. Are are you surprised Ortiz got in on the first year? I actually am. Yeah, I thought it would take him at least maybe three, four years um, just because first ballot is such a rare thing. And a lot of people, when they talked about his numbers, they said, well, his numbers are good, but they're not outstanding. So, and, you know, I I think his numbers stack up. I think that his numbers alone puts him in there. but there was some debate about that. So I was a little surprised that he got in first round, uh, you know, first go of it, because um, I think, you know, leading up to it, there was a lot of debate about him. And, and then as you know, the weeks and months went on, it just sort of became like, Oh, it's, it's looking like an automatic. So I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little bit surprised there. Um, I was hopeful throughout it. I, I thought, and I, I thought it was going to come within single digits in votes. And I, it might have with him being what 3% over. I just knew that the New York market and that showed was going to screw him over. They weren't going to vote. I think there was one weird ballot. I want to say it was like Joel Corey. That it was like Billy Wagner, Jeff Kent, and just like complete oddball ones. And then you got the Shaughnessy's of the world. And we've also seen the blank ones. So I, yeah, I was a little surprised he got it, but I knew he was going to be close. Uh, it would, it would have been really bad for baseball, especially right now. If no one got on, um, if they like, if he made that announcement after a four hour show and was like, and no one's in, like, you know, the day we've had back to back days of negotiations, with lockouts and then you drop that bomb it would have been <laughs> bad they probably would have lied and rigged the numbers but it, yeah it would have been bad yeah you know 
there were some websites that were tracking their numbers based on the ballots that were made public. And I think, let's see, 53% of the ballots were public. So I think that was uh, over 200 of them. Uh, I think there's 400 something overall. So that would have meant over 200 ballots were made public. And when you look at Bonds and Clemens in the last few years, the last three or four years, they're always above the threshold with the public ones. And then on the day the results get released and the the non-disclosed ballots are, are finally tallied in, they end up cascading, you know, eight or 10 percent. And I think I said yesterday privately in our little war room that I didn't expect Bonds or Clemens to be at, you know, at or above 68 percent. And it, it turned out they were they were just a little below that. So based on where they were, I think they were trending at 78, 77% and Ortiz was around, I think, 82%. I thought he was going to have a similar cascade effect that might have dropped him into the low 70s. So that would have put him on uh, perhaps closer to Jason's timeline of three or four years, maybe two, but... I certainly didn't think it was going to be the first year based on the data we were seeing uh, in, in recent days and weeks. So a little surprised there. It's interesting. He gets in on his first year of eligibility. Edgar Martinez was the other career DH. He needed his 10th year. That was, that was when he got in. It was his last chance. He finally got elected. So... I think Ortiz, I don't think that had any bearing on Ortiz, but it is interesting that he gets in on the first year and then Martinez the last year. So I think I think the defensive narrative or the importance of players playing positions is out the window. Like if Miguel Cabrera was a DH this whole time, he's going in. And I yeah. think you'll see that. And to that point, um, it's kind of crazy that that has always been the narrative. Well, you know, he's a DH only, blah, 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 blah. And that's why a lot of people didn't vote for him. You know, the ballots that knocked him down to 77. But then you got guys like Andrew Jones and Scott Rowland, who also didn't get the votes, but they're two of the best defensive players at their positions of all time. And at what point does that factor, you know what I mean? Because they both fell short of 500 home runs. Andrew Jones is pretty close. That should, you know, when you have stuff like that, defense should put you, in my opinion, should put you over the hump. I don't know. I was a little sad that he didn't get more votes. Scott Rowland um, actually did better than I thought he was going to do. I think he finished at like 66% or something like that. So he's on track to get in within a couple of years. I don't know. I, I think it has to balance out in some ways. The DH isn't a new thing. We're getting rid of some of the dinosaurs that have been doing the voting. Just, you gotta just go in with an open mind, especially, especially if we're gonna have universal DH um, coming out of this lockout. Well, see, I think if you have amazing off the chart offensive numbers, to me, that's still good enough. And I think part of what helped Ortiz was his postseason heroics. You know, hitting 688 in the World Series in 2013 and then the epic walk-offs in the totally. 2004. So I think that helped him uh, regardless. But 
Bryce Harper is going to be a Hall of Famer, and he's going to be one of the, well, I wouldn't say one of the worst defensive outfielders we've ever seen, but a significantly below average, especially if he's still out there in his mid-30s. Absolutely, yeah. That's a, I've, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like he would have been better for the team if he wasn't in the field. So, like, why does he get an advantage for being a negative defensive asset? And he's going to get in anyway, so I, I don't – I, I for and it's mostly Yankees fans, but for them saying that he was a career DH and he doesn't deserve to get in, I just think that's stupid. Yeah, I I agree, and like it's gonna be Scott Rowland's gonna be an interesting one because his numbers are creeping up like every single year he's been on. This is his fifth year, I believe, so he's got you know four more to go or whatever. So he might actually get in because there is sort of now a new call for. You know, it's not all about just numbers that pop off the charts. It's you got to look at the deeper numbers, look at the amount of gold gloves he won, look at, you know, uh, his ancillary stats, not so much the home run total. So uh, Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones are going to be two to keep an eye on because their numbers could continue to go up. And I think more and more people are going to make a case for guys like that to be allowed into the hall. How many more years does Andrew Jones have? Any idea or just a rough estimate? Oh, rough estimate. It can't be too many more. Yeah, I, that's what was, I'm thinking. He's, he's halfway through right now. This was yeah. his fifth year on the ballot. Okay. Same with Roland. So they have the exact same timeline going on right now. I, I was guessing Jones was probably more like his seventh or eighth year. But, but he's always a popular candidate, and you always see people making cases for him. So... Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, another thing that I think is hilarious, and just to be clear, I wasn't, I didn't vote for Ortiz on, on my ballot because I'm just, whether he did it or not, he's still linked to steroids. And from an integrity standpoint, as much as I love him, and he's probably a top two or three favorite Red Sox player of all time, I have to be consistent. So if I'm not putting Bonds and Clemens in, I can't put Ortiz in. Having said that, and knowing that he was going to get in anyway, and, and regardless, one thing I find hilarious is Alex Rodriguez has been somewhat of a media darling, you know, with his his studio work during the postseason with the Fox crew, which Ortiz has been a part of, with his commentary on Sunday Night Baseball. It's almost like it's... Uh, it's like a apology tour or a, like an image rehab tour for him to try to become more likable to get eventually into Cooperstown. And I think it's failed. I think the JLo thing has some role in that, you know, it wasn't good publicity for him. And, um, but Ortiz has been the darling his whole career. And he was on the better side of the rivalry. You know, he won, what, three rings compared to Rodriguez won. He's more, a lot more likable. And he just kind of sails in on his first try. So Ortiz does nothing but win. And, and Rodriguez just does nothing but lose. And Rodriguez, only 34%. That's interesting. He, he'll have a shot to get in perhaps in years maybe 8, 9, and 10. I think it's going to take him quite a while to 
to get real close anyway. So I don't know how many of these hardcore anti-steroid guys are going to hang around for his whole 10-year run on the ballot. But he, he has to be envious of Ortiz to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. And media likability does count when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame. You need the writers to like you. Uh, ask Kurt Schilling about that because he pissed off all of them and basically you know, took himself out of the Hall of Fame by doing that. Um, and Alex Rodriguez getting 34%, that goes to show you. you know, That's like even, even the apology tour wasn't enough to erase what writers already knew about him. The, the writers who covered him and watched him his whole career, they know that he's a fraud. They know exactly what he's all about. You know, they, they look at his whole, you know, I'm going to better my image thing after he retired and the J-Lo thing. They go, yeah, you're, you're still the same guy, though. You're still the same guy who, you know, you were a prick to the media. You, you did all sorts of stuff on and off the field that pissed everybody off. And, you know, and then you cheated. So, I mean, and blatantly cheated um, and kept cheating for as long as you could to lengthen your career. So writers have long memories. And this is one where I actually sort of give them a little nod because it's like, yeah, you shouldn't just fall for the media tour and the apology tour, as you called it. Like, don't fall for that. You guys know who A-Rod really is. And they showed it. They're like, no, we still don't like you. Too bad. Yeah, you know, I, I think this was an initial uh, was an initial F you to A-Rod from the old watch, if you may, of the uh, the voters who probably won't be voting in the next five years. Your Shank Shaughnessy's and like, you know, those guys that have been voting for 40 years now. I did see a stat where something like 51 of the 54 newest members did vote for guys like Clemens and Vaughn. So I think we will see A-Rod move up pretty quickly on the, uh, on the ballot here. I, I think people have stopped caring as much, or at least, you know, our generation has stopped caring as much about, you know, steroids. It's like, listen, we, we're not dumb. We all knew what happened. The league knew what happened. They didn't care. So as much as I'd love to see A-Rod not make it, I, I do think he will probably make it within the next like three to five years. And I think we're going to see, start seeing some, um, some bigger hall guys. If, you know, the last of like the 05, you know, 03 to 05 really stud players makes their way onto the ballot. If he were not a Yankee for most of his career, let's say he was a Chicago Cub or perhaps, you know, an Anaheim Angels player, is he maybe 10 or 15 points higher right now than I think that's fair. I mean, he was terrible in the playoffs. Like if he just stayed in Texas, let that deal run up and re-sign with Texas, I think he would have had, you know, he, no one would have given a damn about what he did. It'd be like, Oh, he finished with 750 home run. I don't know how many finished with. And you know, no one would have given a damn because he was in Arlington. You know, it wasn't the pressures of New York. It wasn't him slapping uh, Bronson Arroyo on the biggest stage. You know, it, I think he would probably be more well-liked. No one would have given a damn about his lack of success. I mean, look at Mike Trout. 
And yeah, I, I think we would have seen him at like 65, 70, or maybe even first ballot. Yeah, I mean, that was always the joke about A-Rod, is that whenever, you know, if the Yankees had a stacked team going to the playoffs, it's, well, you don't have to worry about A-Rod, he's not going to hit. You know, and that that was a very real thing that was attached to his career. Um, so in a way, yeah, like playing on a team that went to the playoffs as much as they did and gave him as much opportunities in the postseason to choke as they did, uh, it might have hurt him, absolutely. The only thing that gives me a little bit more reservation as to if he'll get in or how close he'll get is, is his public image going to improve in the coming years or is it going to decline with another controversy or minor scandal? Cause I, I think well, it's, it's going to go the wrong way. I think uh, he can't really afford to get into any more scandals though. Now that he owns a basketball team, I mean, he'll literally put his every like his assets at risk with the uh, with the T wolves if he um, if he gets into anything. So I I think he's gonna remain squeaky clean. Do, I, if he gets that Sunday night broadcast thing that they're gonna try and do like the Manning vision of, uh, it's gonna be terrible. But I yeah I just see him kind of just you know stay in the course with what we've seen the last two to three years out of him. So what is the Manning thing? I keep I keep hearing about the Manning cast or whatever, but I I don't know what it is. It's an alternative. So it's just an alt broadcast. So you know how um, ESPN two had their like stat cats broadcast yeah. on site that, but you'll just have to listen to a rod ramble for like four freaking hours with guests. Okay. <laughs> so it won't be so much focused on the game. It sounds like it'll be like a side conversation with a little yep. bit of baseball. Ugh, exactly. I hate that. I hope that <laughs> never becomes like a norm, uh, you know, for, Certain things. I think WEI floated that, didn't they? Hmm. It was a few years ago. They were going to have some studio-based conversation thing. They were going to reimagine what a baseball broadcast was. I I can't remember the details. I know some of the listeners probably remember it a little bit better. But, yeah. So, uh, let's go over a couple more. Um, Jonathan Papelbon, 1.3%. So in order for him to stay on the ballot next year, he would have needed 5%. So he's going to be one and done. That's still, and Jonathan Papelbon is my favorite Red Sox player of all time. I, you know, he was a little obnoxious, but he's still my favorite. And he kicked Bryce Harper's ass. So that's uh, cool. Unfortunately, he did that, you know, in a, well, in a Nats uniform. But um, it's just crazy to me how he probably was the second best closer behind Rivera 07 through 2014. If you want to throw Kimbrell in there, I think Kimbrell's run kind of started a, a, a year or two into that. But I, I think Papelbon was the second best. And I know this has no real bearing on what could have been Papelbon's future candidacy to the Hall of Fame, but... Who do you want in a big game in the ninth inning? Do you do you want Papelbon to take the ball, or do you want Kimbrel to take the ball? Well, Papelbon probably. Yeah. But the, the problem that Papelbon's suffering from here is the closers being devalued in the sport. So, like Rivera was a no-brainer because he was just so dominant that you know it obviously you had to put him in. But like to be quite honest, does Trevor Hoffman really 
need to be in the Hall of Fame. He was a save accumulator. He was never like, you never worried about Trevor Hoffman, you know, being on the mound. Like he didn't scare you like Rivera did. And I just feel like the sport in general is just devaluing the closer. I'm not sure what closer will get in from this point on. Um, I mean, Chapman, I think it is up there in terms of total saves, but I don't even think he might get in. So I just feel like the position is, it doesn't get the respect that it used to. So I think that's what hurts Papelbon because his numbers are really good. And I agree. I think during that stretch, he was the second best guy behind Rivera, but I just don't think the sport cares about closers anymore. Well, Billy Wagner, uh, and he's got three years left now. He shot up. I, he got 51% of the votes. I don't know. I can see a push for him. Uh, he, he had a hell of a career. I, I don't know though, but I agree. I mean, I was looking at some of these stats the other day. And it's like, you know, if we're going to start putting some guys in based off like Steve numbers, like Francisco Rodriguez is might have to go in there. Cause like his accumulated stats look pretty good across the board. I, I don't know if he belongs in there and actually, no, he doesn't belong in there, but yeah, I don't know if we start doing stack patterns, uh, then, then it gets a little dicey, but I do agree. Papelbon was a great closer for a stretch. I, I don't know. I'm, I thought, I thought he probably ended him up with the the same amount of votes as he probably should have. Maybe a couple more. Do you think the Harper thing might have hurt him in a way? I he seemed pretty not liked, but everywhere he went, I don't know. True. It seemed like he kind of. I don't know. I I'm sure it didn't help. I think, yeah, I think he was always viewed as like an obnoxious ass throughout his whole career. Like not just the Harper thing, but like even when we won, like the whole dancing, doing the little jig on the field, like sure. A lot of people in Boston thought it was hilarious. I did. Yeah. But I think a lot of people nationally like, oh, you tool. I would have hated him. I I think it did hurt him a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember him being so much of a, of an ass with, Boston like there weren't any real major controversies and you could see it with Philly a little bit and he would act out like remember that thing he had with Joe West he kind of grabbed his private area towards the crowd and then Joe West saw it and ejected him and then apparently he he made physical contact with I I don't know if they bumped chests or if Papelbon just kind of swatted him with his hand or something I, I can't remember how that went but it wasn't a good look and he wasn't pitching well at the time so when you take the controversies with the times he wasn't pitching well it, it kind of amplified it even more and he was definitely his tank was about empty when the Harper thing happened you know he was traded to the Nationals I think mid-season they were kind of hoping to salvage something for a for a run there uh you know in the playoffs and it just didn't work out and he he dropped off the mat the map excuse me and just disappeared until last season they started having him on Nesson with Tom Karen in the studio uh part of the broadcast and it was almost like he just disappeared and he's not on social media there's just there was no real trace of him anywhere so I just, I kind of thought it was uh, interesting, but, but I, I'm not saying he, he was a hall of famer. I'm just surprised he didn't, he didn't break the 5% and, you know, had a run. Can I throw one out there that sure. I'm actually a little annoyed by? And he also 
Um, didn't break the 5%. He's gone. Tim Hudson. If you look at his stats compared to Andy Pettit's, that is a total player A, player B. And if you were like, if you didn't look at any of the other numbers, Pettit has him in wins, which he should. He's one of those stacked Yankees teams. Tim Hudson was a damn good pitcher. He ended up winning. What did he end up with? 222 wins. His ERA was a half point better. You know, he had 3.49, but he had 3.85. Tim Hudson only getting 3% of the votes is kind of crazy, especially, you know, the era that he did it in. I don't know. It, I thought he deserved a little bit more love uh, when it came to that, especially since Pettit got 42 votes and 10 and 10.7%. He was on that 2010 Giants team, was he? No, he was on the 2014. Oh, he was on that team. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, and he, he has all the, yeah, like the sort of minimum requirements that you would want, like over 200 wins, over 2,000 strikeouts, four-time All-Star, and he's got a World Series ring. Now he doesn't have a Cy Young, but neither does Pettit, right? So I mean, that's yeah. No, he finished second, sixth, fourth, fourth. That's pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, so he was he was always in the conversation. Yeah. So I mean, it, it is surprising that he got so little love. Yeah, his second place was behind Pedro's two thousand. So I we can give him the Cy Young because Pedro deserves something even higher than him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Cy Young A and Cy Young B, basically. Uh, all right, uh, a couple of uh, interesting ones. Uh, Carl Crawford, zero votes on 400-something ballots. Not one of them found a reason to give him one vote. Jake Peavy, I'd be a little bit more sympathetic. I mean, I think he probably deserved 10 votes minimum. I, I don't know. I, I don't think he would have broke the threshold, but... He, he was a one-time Cy Young winner, wasn't he? He did. Yeah, he won it one year. Yeah. But going back to Crawford, I, I'm shocked that no South Florida writer, you know, gave him a pity vote. A.J. Brzezinski got two votes. We can find <laughs> one. Literally the most hated man in baseball. We can find a vote for Carl Crawford. I, I, obviously, he went horrible in Boston, but he absolutely killed Boston his entire career in uh, Tampa. So I don't know. I, I don't think he deserved to get none. I don't think he deserved to carry over, but I don't think he deserved to get none. And then he killed Boston in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. See, the, there's a difference here, though, between Crawford and Pruszynski. Crawford was a douchebag to his wife, gets arrested, no votes. Pruszynski was only a douchebag to baseball players and umpires. And so maybe that's the difference in why you get a couple votes. One of my favorite Pruszynski stories, actually, there's two of them. He got ejected from a game once because he asked an umpire for a, a ball or whatever. And he goes, preferably one you can see. And the umpire just instantly tosses him. I'm like, come on, you got to have a little bit, a little bit of game. You know, umpires can talk smack too, you know, if they want to. When I was a corrections officer, if an inmate mouthed off to me, I could lock him down for 48 hours. But I would very seldom ever do that. I would just give it back to him, and you know, and that was it. You know, verbally, I mean. So, so yeah, I, I think umpires should, you know, have a little bit more spine than that. My other favorite story was when him and Peavy, ironically, 
were Cubs. They got into it one game. I can't remember if it, it might've been in the dugout or something. And it was, I can't remember if they were swinging at each other, but naturally moments later, the press goes into the clubhouse and they want to figure out what happened. So they're doing interviews and, and, and PV's side of the story was, uh, oh, we were arguing over hunting, you know, which game is the toughest to kill or whatever. And that was PV's story. Then they go interview uh, Prasinski, and Prasinski goes, well, you see, we were, we were arguing about college football. He, you know, I'm a Florida State guy. He's an Alabama guy. <laughs> so they're giving two drastically different stories to the press. But The rat versus the raccoon in the Mets uh, dugout. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and apparently that was the Lindor McNeil thing. And, and apparently Lindor kind of kicked his ass from what, from what came out after the season, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not shocked with that clubhouse, honestly. Yeah. That sounded sound like an absolute nightmare. Thumbs down to them. Lindor's <laughs> like, he doesn't look like a big guy, so he doesn't strike me as like a fighter. And he's always this happy-go-lucky guy. I mean, not, he's never had any controversy before that. You, can, you can't give him anything but super high praise. So it's just kind of surprising out of all people he ended up in that situation. Like Mookie Betts, could you ever imagine him slugging it out with someone? Behind the scenes. I mean, it's just not who he is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, hopefully that contract works out. I don't hate the Mets, but it's just hilarious how, you know, the the avalanche is going to happen at some point in the season and they're just going to screw themselves. But uh, another one that is a little interesting because he was a, a real force in the middle of the Yankees order for a while and, and with the Angels before them, Mark Tashira, only 1.5% of the vote. He's a guy I would have thought would have hung around, you know, throughout the 10 years, but, you know, just kind of on the lower end. Yeah, Tashira, I'm, I'm surprised that he got that low of, of votes as well, like, he was actually still a pretty decent player when he went to New York. He, he didn't drop off all that much, and he still hit for power. Um, obviously, playing in Yankee Stadium will help with that. So, um, And he played for a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's a little surprising. But, again, like I think he's a classic case of nobody would ever think of Mark Teixeira as like the best player on his team, uh, whether he was with you know the Yankees or the Angels. Um, maybe when he was with the Angels at first, but – he, I, I think going to New York and just kind of being one of the other Yankees there might have hurt him a little bit because he there was nothing special about him after that. He was just a guy in the order, and the rest of that team really kind of took all the glory. Yeah, I mean, God, a guy with so many Boston ties, you know, drafted him. Dan Duquette pissed his father off, so he didn't sign. And then, you know, the Red Sox were trying to trade for him, sign him free agency. Obviously, that didn't happen. And then he goes to New York. I don't. And then New York gives up the pick for Mike Trout. Um, I don't know. Mark, Mark Teixeira, I, I would have to look at the stats closer, but kind of reminds me of a modern day, like Freddie Freeman. I, each has, Freddie got his MVP. I think Teixeira finished second. I don't know. I think that'll be a good case study for uh, Freddie once he hangs up the cleats. So. Yeah, I, I thought Teixeira would get more than that. I mean, over 400 home runs usually buys you, you know, 
getting dragged along for five, six years for, you know, you finally drop off due to better candidates. So yeah, that, that's definitely a surprising number for me. Yeah. And at the time I was a little bummed that the Red Sox were not able to sign him. I think that was after the 08 season. And in hindsight, thank goodness that it didn't happen because that would have been a painful contract. And he, and he had a lot of trouble staying on the field uh, on the back end of that too. So I'm uh, always a, a big fan of, of players that are durable and he certainly uh, would never be in that category, but all right. I thought, Oh, and uh, one other observation I wanted to bring up uh, before we wrap the veterans committee is going to eventually put a vote on a lot of these guys. I don't think bonds or Clemens get in because in the past, those guys have been extremely anti-steroids. Joe Morgan had a really passionate speech about it a few years ago, passed away recently. But it, it's always it's it's the Veterans Committee because it's it's former players and it's only former players. Unlike the the BBWA where it's all writers, so it's kind of a you know a different animal, so to speak. So I'm thinking probably still going to be a negative on them. I think Kurt Schilling will have a reasonable chance to get in uh, via that route. I, I could be wrong because there's politics, there's agendas and whatnot, but I think I think he stands a decent chance to get in that way. Jack, like Jack Morris uh, recently. I could see that. Yeah, because I, I don't think that Schilling pissed off as many former players as he did writers. I think there's a lot of former players that have a lot of respect for him. And um, from everything you hear, he was generally a pretty good teammate as well throughout his career. He was never really viewed as like, you know, a, a clubhouse problem. Um, maybe the clubhouse politician, which kind of makes sense given, you know, when you, when you see what he's doing with his uh, post playing career, but never like a bad in, in a bad way, just sort of, you know, he was definitely a leader. He was definitely assertive, but I think a lot of guys looked up to him. And so, I could definitely see that the veterans committee sort of being like, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's stick it to the writers. We're, we're going to put them in. Uh, yeah. I think every single one of those guys is going to make it the first time I, they're eligible. I don't know the rules for the veterans committee. I don't even know who's on it still. Quite frankly, most of those people are probably dead that even give a damn about the steroids at this point. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I see no way that uh, Schilling and Clemens and Bonds aren't you know, in that wing. We'll have to look that up, but I'm I'm not still highly skeptical of of Bonds and Clemens. But you know we'll see. Um, all right, so before we wrap, uh, because we had a special request uh, from one of our Twitter followers who. Twitter handle, I'm not going to say her real name because I, I don't know how she would feel about that, but uh, on Twitter she's known as March Maznes, and uh, she keeps us in line. I've I've been scolded by her a couple of times uh, on some stuff that uh, I've posted, and uh, I know Charlie uh, frequently uh, corresponds with her as well, but she wants to know what our favorite baseball movie is. So Jason, go ahead. Yeah, for me, it's uh, Major League Two. Um, I, I thought both Major League, not Major League Three, that was, they, they went too far with those. Both Major League movies were really good, but Major League Two, I thought, was the funniest of the two. It, it was it was just so hysterical, and I never really had 
any love for like the the corny like dramatic baseball movies so uh that one really stuck with me it just it still makes me laugh to this day andrew favorite baseball movie yeah for me it was uh the sandlot uh came out when i was five you know was playing baseball outside every single day with my friends, you know, in the summer. But start at like 8 a.m., go to 8 p.m. So that was definitely it. Watched it God knows how many times. So I'm not even sure what I put second at this point. My girlfriend would agree with you. She loves that movie a lot. Uh, and I, I do too as well. Um, it, I, I was probably, I must have been about nine when that came out. Uh, I'm the oldest on the regular crew. But for me, it's it's Moneyball, and I know there's no classic ring to it. It wasn't there wasn't much comedy in it, but I thought Brad Pitt played a really good Billy Bean, and I don't know if Brad Pitt's a big baseball guy, but he played that part so good he made me believe he was. And I'm not a Jonah Hill guy, so well for the most part. But I thought he was amazing in that role. And because he went from super bad to that in, in just a handful of years. And I just thought that was phenomenal. I did, if you saw the movie recently on Netflix, Don't Look Up, <laughs> it was, I thought Jonah Hill's character was hilarious in that one. But that's a really messed up movie. Um, so I, I don't necessarily recommend seeing it. But for me, Moneyball is my favorite. <laughs> I, Go ahead. Jonah, Jonah, who did he play? Mark Shapiro? He or did. No? Uh, no, no, he played... Um, oh, no, Shapiro Paul, hired... Paul D. Yeah. Podesta, yeah. yeah the assistant the, GM. Yeah. yeah. And he, if you've looked at Paul D. Podesta, he, he's like a third of Jonah Hill. Yeah. I don't know. He must have been like, what the fuck? And that was... <laughs> on, Jonah Hill's lost a lot of weight in recent years, but he hadn't quite yet by the time he took that role and uh that was just a good movie and philip seymour hoffman uh played art Howe, and uh, that's another thing and he admitted i've seen like behind the scenes interviews with hoffman about his role as art Howe, the manager of the a's and he says i don't know a lot about baseball but he took the role and um he made me believe he was a he was a baseball guy just a phenomenal movie. Tragically, though, he did die shockingly of a drug overdose, and he was never in the tabloids for anything like that. He had a very clean uh, image, his, an impeccable record, basically. And uh, so I was pretty stunned to learn that um, that was the cause of his passing. But he did uh, he did play a great uh, supporting role in that movie. So. We just kind of wanted to throw that out there. She uh, she wanted to know. There is a YouTube video on this with our actual YouTube crew. I know Patrick was one of them on that episode. But they did, uh, I think Luke as well. They, they did a really good job and I think did a 30-minute episode on what their favorites were. And so I highly recommend you guys go check that out for more in-depth talk on on those subjects and um they're they're cranking out tons of content all the time so find the bastards of boston on youtube that's a separate crew and uh i'm sure you guys will enjoy it try to be back probably i know we're early in the week so it 
probably Sunday will still be the earliest we will record, barring a major development, of course. So um, we'll, we'll see what's going on. Plenty of negotiations news coming out today. Not a lot of agreeing, but both sides making certain concessions. Um, they're not going to do the age-based um, service time thing that the union wanted, and, and uh, the owners aren't going to try to mess with the arbitration process or whatever. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. that. Those could be topics for Sunday. So we'll, uh, we'll just kind of see what happens the rest of the week and then uh, catch up with you then. Take care.